Good morning. I love that 1 Corinthians passage. It's always an encouragement every time I hear it read. Speaking of the resurrection that we all look forward to one day. Life eternal. A while back, Sherry and I uh, and some friends walked around the Roslyn Cemetery uh, and saw some very interesting tombstones and some epitaphs that uh, were memorable. I always enjoy visiting um, cemeteries and looking at dates and times and uh, see who is the, you know, oldest tombstone in the, in the park and the youngest and so forth and so on. I uh, just, you know, I enjoy thinking about what their lives may have been about and, and what they faced and how long they lived and where they came from and all that kind of thing. Um, but we enjoyed that. There are some tombstones that, that uh, have some revealing epitaphs, uh, some that I've read, like this one. I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. I like that epitaph. You think they still believe that? <laughs> At least they don't care. Many alive today do not know um, how to think about the next life, the, the afterlife. And I'm wondering about you. What is your perceptive perception of the afterlife? How do you view it? Like some, they believe in reincarnation. They're going to come back as a butterfly if things go well. Uh, others believe at death they'll return to nothingness. They pretend to be okay with these scenarios. Many others are so consumed with the here and now that they don't give a second thought to the afterlife. Since they don't know the scriptures, some take it for granted that they're going to continue in some blissful experience, whether or not they've known God here on this planet. But Jesus' words in the text we're reading today, and I'm preaching from today, give us a different perspective. The New Testament gives us a different perspective. What we just heard read from 1 Corinthians is significantly different than some of the things I've just mentioned. John Piper, in his good book, God is the Gospel, says this, and I want you to think and hear, hear this well. My point in this book is that all the saving events and all the saving blessings of the gospel are means of getting obstacles out of the way so that we may know and enjoy God most fully. Propitiation, redemption, forgiveness, imputation, sanctification, liberation, healing, heaven, none of these is good news except for one reason. They bring us to God for our everlasting enjoyment of him. If we believe all these things have happened to us, but do not embrace them for the sake of getting to God, they have not happened to us. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who were going to go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. 
It's a good way to think about our relationship with God now as it relates to our future life, right? Our next life. How do you think about the next life? About resurrected life? Is it going to be something similar to what I've stated or not? Many times people try to describe what the next life is going to look like by describing their own idea of utopia. This is what I, I think it's going to be like because this would be my best case scenario. And then they repeat what heaven will be like, at least for them, instead of what the Bible teaches about it. You've heard things like heaven's going to be endless beautiful golf courses, right? You golfers. Or idyllic fishing trips on heavenly lakes and streams. Or an endless mall with a golden credit card. Right? <laughs> Some, mostly in our camp, believe that heaven will be about sitting around with family and friends, reminiscing about all the good times here on this planet, and picking up right where we left off without much thought about God. Oh yeah, God will be there. Some religious systems teach that the afterlife, for the faithful at least, will be filled with endless sex. Others believe that the next life will produce wings and harps for us. But what does the Bible teach? In our text today, Jesus tells us um, that heaven is a lot different than we may think. That it's different from what we may have been told or what we've read in books or magazines. Most of our utopian, idyllic ideas about heaven are not close, at least not close to what Jesus says. In case none of this afterlife, afterlife talk interests you, none of us in this room are going to outlive the 21st century. You know that? Uh, there might be an infant in the room that may outlive the, this particular century, um, but even then, they'd be in their late 70s. So I can confidently say that 99% of us in this room will not outlive this century. I may die 25 or 50 years before some of the younger people in this room, but even then, when the roll is called and they say, well, everybody that died in the 21st century, please stand up, we'll all join together in that group, standing together. We all died in the 21st century, all right? So you young people don't, don't have it that much better than us, older folks. Uh, you may breathe a few thousand more breaths, but ultimately we're going to be in the 21st century group. And that makes us maybe a little more open to discussions about the afterlife, right? Even the young people in the room, which isn't everybody's favorite topic, but nevertheless, we come across it in our text today, so we're going to talk about it, all right? That's always a good plan. And so let's do that. I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. If you have a Bible, I would love if you would open it there and follow along as I read. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. It says this, And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but 
uh, and, and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And so even as limited as the words of Christ are on the afterlife in this text, they reveal a great matter, a great deal. First of all, I want you to follow along with me as I work my way through it, and the first point is wrong thinking about the afterlife. The question that the Sadducees ask demonstrate wrong thinking about the afterlife. Mark records the question to Jesus by announcing that this group of men who came to ask him the question actually didn't believe in the resurrection. That reveals their motives right there, doesn't it? Yeah. The Sadducees don't believe or didn't believe in personal resurrection. Of the four major religious sects in Israel, the Sadducees, along with the Pharisees, were the most powerful, the most influential, had the most authority. So these guys were the heavy hitters, so to speak, concerning religious matters, the Sadducees. They were an elite social class composed mostly of priests. Imagine that, priests that don't believe in the resurrection, priests that don't believe in the afterlife. Well, what are you priesting if it's not that? The Sadducees opposed this belief of resurrection. They only believed in the here and now. They, they didn't believe that the there was any consequences to bad behavior or any rewards for good behavior. Their belief in no resurrection primarily came as a reaction to what the Pharisees did believe about the resurrection. Pharisees thought that there was no real change in the resurrection from the here and now. You, you, you were raised to life with the same infirmities, the same character qualities, the same problems. You know, I, don't, I can't explain that either. How would that be an encouragement to you? You know, all you folks that have all the issues that we struggle with, get used to that for eternity. That doesn't sound like good encouragement to me. It wouldn't be at all, I don't think, right? So the Sadducee says, that cannot be, and I'm with them on that, but their solution was there must not be a resurrection. <laughs> uh, let's go someplace else, would be my suggestion to my wife if we were looking for churches. Um, but since the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, they did believe in annihilation. When they died, God annihilated them completely uh, from every angle. There was no continuation. They went back to the dust they came from. Uh, the Sadducees' question that we see here in these verses came from what was called the Leverite marriage law. Leverite marriage law from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. When they said, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, they're referring to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6, that stated what they asked. 
if a husband died without children and had a brother, that brother had to take the deceased man's wife on as a wife and produce children or offspring for that man's family. And the purpose of this law, of course, was to keep the inheritance that flowed from generation to generation within their tribe so it wouldn't move out to another tribe if she were to marry someone else. That was the idea behind that particular law stated in Deuteronomy 25. So since the Sadducees were just as interested in destroying Jesus as the Pharisees and every other religious group in Israel, uh, they decided to bring this question to Jesus. If they could get Jesus to mumble or to misspeak mis, uh, concerning this question, it would eliminate Jesus' popularity and his run would be over. Knowing what we do about the Sadducees, it's probable they believe that this ridicu ridiculous question that they posed here was really what they believed to be unanswerable. It, it was something that had stumped their opponents before, like the Pharisees when they debated on the issue of resurrection. It stumped them, so I'm sure it will stump Jesus. And most scholars believe that this particular question was a long-running um, balance to the Pharisees in any debate concerning the issue. No one could answer this question, evidently, which is why they asked it of Jesus. And so they were relishing this moment, being able to ask this question of Jesus and put him in his place and hoping that Jesus would just fold on the matter. If Jesus folded and was unable to answer this particular question, how could he then be the Messiah? How could he be the promised one of God who came from heaven to deliver his people? The Jews had a long-standing belief that the Messiah would answer all their theological questions. Do you remember in John 4 when Jesus encountered the woman at the well and he asked her a theological question? And she said, I don't know, but when the Messiah comes, he will answer us or tell us all things. That was the common belief, that the Messiah would take care of all these theological problems when he showed up. And so if the Sadducees could get Jesus to fold on this question, he couldn't be the Messiah. That was their thinking, hence the question. Unfortunately for the Sadducees, they encountered a divine mind. A mind that had a better grasp of scripture and a knowledge of God than any mind that had ever existed before or since. Jesus knew the scriptures forward and backward. You wanna know why? He was the author of scripture. He was the one who inspired the writers, the prophets, those who wrote the scriptures. So instead of folding, Jesus called. He wanted all the cards on the table and he asked them a counter question, a counter question that pinned the Sadducees to the wall by exposing their lack of scriptural knowledge and exposing their lack of understanding God. Jesus clears up their misunderstanding of the resurrected life by saying there won't be a problem in heaven like you're describing. If you knew the scriptures, you would know that. The only part of a resurrected life that will reflect our earthly lives, Jesus was saying, is going to be your relationship with God. So listen to me, Sun Valley Church. The only, the only part of resurrected life that will reflect your earthly life is your relationship with God. Heaven isn't going to be about you golfing forever or shopping forever or sitting around a campfire with friends and family. 
That is not going to be heaven. Jesus makes that clear in this passage. The only thing that you will take with you to heaven is your relationship with God. So, it might behoove us to be interested in nurturing that part of our earthly lives, of pursuing God a little more seriously, a little more deeply, because that is going to be the basis of our existence, our relationship with God. Understanding the next life to be theocentric is very important and a bit rare in our day. It's mostly due to not only our lack of scriptural knowledge, but our lack of relationship with God in this life. We must be clear that our experience in the resurrected next life will be completely centered on God, which is what theocentric means, centered on God. Not on what we've imagined heaven to be, or what somebody, you know, with good intentions has told you it might be. Let's stick to what Jesus reveals it to be, at least in this short passage. So wrong thinking about the afterlife, first of all, is based on a lack of biblical knowledge. Wrong thinking about the afterlife is based on a lack of biblical knowledge. This is what Jesus said. You know why you're wrong, it's because you don't know much about scripture. Lack of scripture knowledge is of course a common cause of all theological and doctrinal error. We see this all around us. So-called religious leaders of our day are constantly promoting false ideas about God, about scripture, about life, usually to accommodate their own sinful desire for power, prestige, sensuality, money, or something. But any false doctrine, any faulty doctrine, is always based on a lack of scripture knowledge, always. So the Sadducees, in their case, they didn't grasp enough of the scriptures to see that they indeed did speak of and teach the resurrection. Not Jesus' resurrection, our resurrection. The Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection were, now listen, the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection were sad, you see, because they had no hope in the future. Right? How many knew that was coming? Sometime in this sermon. Yeah, okay, six of you. Good. <laughs> but the Old Testament, in fact, does teach the resurrection, doesn't it? In multiple places. Let me show you two. Job 19, uh, some believe the oldest book written in Scripture. Job 19, verses 25 through 27. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last... He will stand upon the earth. After, now listen, after my skin has been thus destroyed, describing death, yet in my flesh I will see God. That is flat out resurrection talk, isn't it? Yeah. Job. Next, Psalm 19, or Psalm 16, 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Even after I die, it's, that's not going to be the end of the story we're hearing. You're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. That's where the path of life is. That's where fullness of joy is. That's where pleasures forevermore are. Where? In the next life, that's where. 
There is a resurrection taught in the Old Testament. And even though this doctrine of resurrection is sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, the Sadducees didn't believe it because they didn't view anything but the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative, as inspired. The Sadducees thought that the only inspired scripture was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The books of Moses, it's called the Pentateuch. That's all they believed. Everything else in the Old Testament was commentary on those five, human commentary on those five. So they would say to us, if they were in this room debating with us, well, Psalm 16 and this text from Job 19 are human commentary on the first five books of Moses. Hence, they're not from God, they're from man. Read what you want from those, that's not convincing. But resurrection is also found, we would say, or counter, in the Pentateuch, in the first five. Genesis 22.5. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22.5, proves that he believed in a resurrection. If Abraham, who lived at the beginning of the people of God, who was included in the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, if he believed in a resurrection, then this would greatly aid our argument, wouldn't it? So you remember what happened in Genesis 22? Genesis 22 was when God commanded Abraham to take his son Isaac to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him, right? And then that was a three-day journey away. And so on this three-day journey, Abraham took his son Isaac and a couple of slaves or servants, and they went up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. Before they got to Mount Moriah, they, Abraham turned to these servants and said, wait here, the boy and I are going to go up to the mountain and return. <laughs> Didn't he? And why did he say, and return? Did he, was he intent on disobeying God and just bringing him back? No, we know the story. He was fully intent on killing his son. But he, in his full intent on killing his son, believed that God would raise Isaac because he was the promised son back to life. And you say, how do you know Abraham was thinking that, Pastor John? Well, because Hebrews tells us he was thinking that. Hebrews 11 actually tells us this is what Abraham was thinking. He thought his son would be raised to life. So it does come up in the Pentateuch, doesn't it? Resurrection. Indeed, it does. They overlooked this. Why? Because they didn't know Scripture well enough, according to Jesus. And it wasn't like these guys were ignoramuses. They, they had the Old Testament memorized. They knew backwards and forward the stories, literally had the Pentateuch memorized. So what gives here? Well, not only did they not know the scriptures, evidently they didn't understand the power of God or understand God. This is also the problem that they were struggling with. They didn't know the scriptures and they didn't know the power of God that's revealed in the scriptures. Let me talk to you a little bit about the power of God and being revealed by the scriptures. There is this, there is this uh, title of God's revelation of the general revelation. You've heard this, right? General revelation 
is what everybody in existence has seen of God. Creation, for example, is general revelation. Anybody can see creation. They can see the beauty of the mountains. They can hear the, the, the beautiful songs that birds sing. They, it's a general revelation of God's existence. How did these things happen without God? Hence, general revelation. But there's also special revelation, which goes a little more deeply into the, the nature of God because it's written in a book. And this is what we have in our hands. This is special revelation. God spoke to the prophets and through the prophets communicated to us things about himself. Special revelation. Beyond general revelation, creation, beyond special revelation, in order to truly know God, there is extra special revelation or personal revelation. Every person in this room who has embraced Jesus Christ has experienced all three. General revelation in creation, special revelation in the book of scripture, and extra special or personal revelation in being drawn by the Holy Spirit so that these things and the world around us makes sense. You would not be sitting here this morning having embraced Jesus as your Savior unless you experienced that extra special revelation of God where he drew your heart to him, right? This is how you can actually be saved. This gospel makes sense. It's no longer just a book written by a bunch of ancient people. It's a book written to me, right? Isn't this what you understand when you embrace the gospel? You understand that this book's talking about my sin and my need for a savior? Exactly. Everybody who reads this book doesn't believe that. There's theology professors who know this book backwards and forward, but don't believe that, right? This requires a revelation from God to you in order to be saved. But <clears throat> this is what the Sadducees were weak on. They, they didn't understand that the, the revelation of God revealed this part of God's nature, his power. They didn't understand God. Hence, they would say, the resurrection can't happen. To understand the resurrection, you must understand God, that he created life out of nothing. Adam and Eve were brought to life from nothing. That's power. God created the dust from which he created two complex human beings. That requires power. If God can create existence, then he can recreate existence, which is what resurrection life is a recreation of human existence. The lack of understanding God's power was the cause of the Sadducees' unbelief. So we have two things that Jesus confronted, their lack of understanding of Scripture and their lack of understanding God. And then he corrects it. Then he corrects those two things. First of all, by using their illustration of marriage to correct their misunderstanding of the afterlife. Using the illustration of marriage or the question about marriage to correct their misunderstanding of the afterlife. He informed the Sadducees that resurrected life isn't like life that we know it now. Resurrected life is completely different than that. 
And we can, I think, in this room, learn from Jesus' comments about the afterlife along with our Pharisee friends or Sadducee friends. So resurrection life doesn't mean more of the same kind of life, like stacking on Legos, adding Legos upon Legos so you got more Legos. That's not resurrection life. He creates something completely different. He doesn't use Legos anymore to create life. When resurrected, we enter a new and different dimension of experience. One significant element that is going to change is human relationships. This is what Jesus is focusing on because that was their question. Marriage is the most fundamental human relationship that we know of, isn't it? Marriage. That is a fundamental human relationship. So when Jesus said, that, said what he did about marriage to the Sadducees, he was notifying us that all human relationships are going to be different in the next life, not just marriage. And not just human relationships and marriage relationship, but all existence is going to be different in the next life. You want to tickle your brain a little bit, read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, concerning the next life. It is mind-boggling. And this C.S. Lewis isn't a dummy either concerning Scripture and the nature of God. So not just human relationships, but all of existence will be different. In glory, for example, we're not going to need food when we get to the next life. We're not going to need to eat. We're not going to need sleep. We're not going to need air. We're not going to need any of these things that we need now to survive. We will be fully sustained on every level by the presence of Jesus Christ. That's just the starting blocks. All right? We will no longer need assistance in our sanctification, by the way, which marriage provides us now. The reason us married people are so holy is because of our spouse. Right? This is really the truth. God uses marriage to sanctify his people. And if you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We will no longer need the spiritual and emotional and mental support that spouses give one another in this life. Why? Because we'll be already fully transformed into the image of Jesus. I don't need any more sanctification from Sherry. It's obsolete. I will now be like Jesus. This is what we're going to be seeing in the resurrection life. So in the resurrection, Jesus is simply saying this, humans will no longer need marriage for sanctification, for encouragement, for any of the above. We're not even going to need sanctification to be a picture of Jesus' relationship to his church because we will all be there in the resurrected life. Marriage will be obsolete. So just to, just to kind of uh, dig out some more of the, of the moss that's in this passage, uh, he isn't teaching that after death we're going to become angels. Some have read this text and concluded, because Jesus mentions what he does about angels, that we must, you know, grow wings and play harps for the rest of eternity. Because we're going to be like, no, he says, like is an important word in Scripture. It's a, it's a simile, a simile, it's similar to. We're going to be similar to the angels as it relates to sex and marriage. It's going to be completely different in that day 
So marriage is an earthly thing. You won't be married in heaven. And half of you are going, oh, no. And some of you are saying, under your breath, oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on either one. But I know you people. And let me conclude with this. As Jesus was correcting their thinking about the afterlife, he began by using the terminology they were asking him about marriage. But he also went beyond that and brought in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And this, I've titled it, We'll Never Be More Alive. It's, it is stunning. Jesus' answer is stunning. You know, we, we hear Jesus' answers throughout the Gospels, and some of them stun us. Most of them are followed up by the author saying, and they were amazed. This one is amazing. So listen closely. This is where Jesus, in the conversation, threw in Exodus 3, 6. Evidently, the Pentateuch does speak to the resurrection, not just because of what I mentioned to you in Genesis 22. Jesus didn't use that one. He went straight for the jugular with, with Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. It does address the resurrection. Jesus bores in on their ignorance of Scripture by reminding them of the bush passage in Exodus 3. Notice that he didn't say, do you remember Exodus 3, 6? You know why Jesus didn't say that, right? Yeah, because the numbers, chapters and verses didn't come along till the 14th century. So they had to revert, refer to different passages by saying, yeah, you remember when, you know, Moses talked to God in a burning bush? That's what Jesus was doing here. Remember the passage of the burning bush? So bringing up God's relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was part of that burning bush saga or story. Uh, And it further exposed their ignorance of scripture. And imagine that, religious leaders who don't know scripture. Religious leaders who don't know God. In fact, that's not so uncommon. But the Sadducees prided themselves on their knowledge of the first five books. They revered Moses and his writings, (laughs) and yet they missed a central doctrine that Moses himself cherished. Resurrection. Big, it was a big, important topic to Moses. Exodus 3.6 confirms this. In Exodus 3.6, Jesus quotes it by saying this. <clears throat> in as far, verse 26, as far as the dead being raised, have you not read? <laughs> Wouldn't that humiliate you? When I was going through Bible school down in Portland, Oregon, Uh, John G. Mitchell, who began the college, was still there teaching. I was sitting in his class, and what he's famous for saying is this when we, he would ask questions. He was a question asker in his teaching, and sometimes he stumped us. Not sometimes, most of the time. He stumped us, and he would ask this. He goes, don't you read your Bibles? Don't you ever read your Bibles, students? This is what Jesus was saying here. Uh, Sadducees, don't you read your Bibles? What's the matter with you folks? You're the the religious leaders and you don't read the scripture? Come on. Talk about humiliation. But here it is. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, quote, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That is a direct quote from Exodus 3, 6. 
<laughs> so if Jesus was quoting God from Exodus 3, 6, this must mean that those three men that were referenced in Exodus 3, 6 are still alive, <laughs> right? He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Jacob, and, or Isaac and Jacob. He said, I am, present tense verb, I am the God. These guys are still living and breathing. So there must be a resurrection because we all know they died. <laughs> so if those three men presently didn't exist, then God would have simply referred to them in the past tense. I was their God. I'm your God too, right? Moses, don't be afraid. No, he didn't do it like that. I am. These three guys are alive, and one day we'll be alive with them. Because there is such a thing as a resurrection. Jesus' simple quote of this verse was brilliant. Not only did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob need to be alive in order for God to be, present tense, their God, but they also must be resurrected in body. The promises made to them by God, none of which received the promises. Hebrews 11 makes a point of this. It, lists, it goes through all sorts of Old Testament characters and lists them by name. And it says this at the end of the chapter, none of these received the promises made. Who's making the promises? God is. And so if God makes a promise, is he at liberty to ignore the promise if you die? No. Not at all. The point being, there will be a resurrection so he can fulfill his promises to those people he made them to. Like you and me. The promise of resurrection. You won't know that promise until the day you open your eyes before Christ. And then the promise will be fulfilled. Just like it is to them. We will be resurrected to life. They will be resurrected to life. So that... God can fulfill his promises to his people. Amen and amen. The list of people in Hebrews 11 is extensive. Read through it. God does not make eternal covenants, eternal promises with people whose entire existence lasts only 70 or 80 years. No. Origen, the great Origen, said in the second century the following, it is ridiculous for God to say that he is the God of men who have no existence. Therefore, because God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they must be living, and thus the resurrection is a reality. And this was Jesus' argument. And by the way, side note, you ready for a side note? If Jesus makes a point about the tense of a verb in an ancient text, we maybe need to think a little more seriously about the inerrancy of Scripture, right? <laughs> Jesus is pointing about the tense of a verb. That says something about his belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay, done with the side note. You can take that if you'd like. But Jesus' affirmation back to our text here of the resurrection for all who believe in him is a great encouragement, isn't it, Christian friend? When we sing these songs about future glory with Christ, doesn't your heart warm to those things? It does. It does indeed. 
We will all one day see him face to face and be transformed into his image with a renewed but greatly souped up body. And I'm thankful for that. Right? Some of you people that are 30 years and younger, you know, you got your souped up body of sort of, but wait a few years and then you'll realize how great this idea of resurrection is. Right? <laughs> like Paul said in Philippians 3.21, God will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. We, in this room, are going to be just like Jesus one day with his physical body. Does he have a physical body right now? Yes, he does. That's what ascended into heaven was his physical body. That's what came out of the grave. That's what ate and drank in disgust topics with his followers a physical body but it was a little more souped up than the one he went into the grave with wasn't it before he went into the grave could Jesus walk through walls no after how about that did he yeah it records it he walks through walls I haven't tried that lately I have tried that in my life but not lately and it's still something we can't accomplish right we will be perfect, physically perfect, as Jesus currently is. We'll be spiritually perfect, as Jesus always has been. We will perfectly love God, for example, without any hindrance from sin. You know what gets in the way of your love for God here and now? Sin. And when you are resurrected, you will be in a sinless place. There will be no sin in your heart. There will be no sin in your surroundings. Everything will be perfect so that you can love God perfectly. What a glorious thought that is. We will be perfectly able to love each other because there will be no sin. Right now the things that get in the way of us loving each other as we should is sin. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 13 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Now we know in part, we know just a little bit, a little sliver, but then we will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Friends, we will have a perfect existence one day, sinless perfection, never tired, never distracted, Never tempted, never bored, never sorrowful, never distracted, never discouraged. Sign me up, right? Revelation 21.4 He, that is God, will wipe away every tear. This is the Apostle John talking about the resurrected eternal life that we all look forward to. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We will never be more alive. Let's thank God for that. Lord, we do lift up our voices in praise and thanksgiving for this wonderful reality, this wonderful truth, these wonderful promises 
that you have made to those of us who embrace your son, Jesus Christ. We look forward to the day when we will be out of this, this corrupted tent that we live in currently and will be in possession of a new and perfect, wonderful body so that we can experience you, Lord Jesus, the Father and the Spirit in ways unimaginable to us at this moment. And oh, we look forward to those days where we can be together in your presence, loving each other and most of all, loving and worshiping you. Thank you for this wonderful passage of encouragement from Jesus. Thank you for sending your son that we might know forgiveness of sin and salvation and eternal resurrected life with you forever. And it's in his name we pray, amen.